0: This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast where I explore a full-spectrum spirituality. That is an approach to practice, whether it's yoga or meditation, it's an approach to practice that attempts to uh, include and address all levels of our being, and that will include the high, beautiful dimensions of ourselves, the low, shadowy, shameful aspects of ourselves, and everything in between. And in this episode, I share my own practice story in a way, or a practice story from my own practice around working with anger. And this was a response to a question that came up in the Sangha, where a student requested that I offer some reflections on anger. And I think this, this, in some ways, really dovetails, as you'll hear, this dovetails my recent conversation with Robert Wright on the show about um Difficulties I've had with cognitive empathy and and what I try to, to tie together here is that when uh, life triggers uh, stimulate me in this example into a state where I'm kind of Aroused or you know irritable and angry it shuts down my capacity for cognitive empathy and that in itself tends to fuel future interpersonal uh, spirals of unfortunate conflict and um, but the, the remedy, as I get into, is a practice of cognitive empathy or a way of mindfully communicating that seeks mutual understanding um, as a starting place for harmony and, and, and peaceful coexistence. And, and I refer to that, that conversational style as active, reflective communication, and in my opinion active reflective communication is really how wise speech emerges in our embodied speech with others. So I hope you find uh, that there are elements of my practice story that resonate with you and I hope that maybe some of the insights I'm reflecting on open up insights for you in your own practice in your own life. Um, Do leave a comment in the comment section on the on the blog on, on the podcast on the website I should say or um, shoot me an email at josh at net. But more importantly, if you resonate with this story um, and you're interested in, in embodiment practices like yin yoga and qigong, or what Terry and I are going to soon be calling, more formally, fluid yin yoga, this hybridization of yin yoga with mobility, strength, self massage. Um, self-myofascial release. uh, It's sort of our blend of our favorite practices that we're we're, uh, unifying and uh, synthesizing. Um, But if you'd like support in your own practice and if you'd like to join the conversation that we're hosting with our our fellow practitioners and teachers, do subscribe. Uh, You can become a member with one of our sliding fees starting at $25 a month. Um, You can become a member by clicking on the link in the show notes. We'll give you two free weeks uh, to try us out, along with a copy or a free copy of my new ebook, The What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga. So I hope you enjoy my reflections today. I hope they open up some avenues of inquiry in your own practice. Um, and we look forward to practicing with you soon. Without further ado, here's today's Dharma story, Cooling the Flames of Anger. start with a a story you may be familiar with um I was recently reminded of this, but it's a story about Mahatma Gandhi and uh and I don't know if this is a true story I haven't even I didn't look it up, but I've heard it many times so it's sort of a maybe a myth or a a, a parable about Gandhi's uh, character and his teaching but the story is this that There's one day where Gandhi was um, giving audiences, giving personal private audiences at his his ashram. So people would travel from far and wide to line up and wait to be seen and have an audience with Gandhi. And in this uh, story, there's a woman, a mother, with a young son who she's bringing to meet and see Gandhi. And they wait all day. Um, And towards the end of the period of time that Gandhi's giving audiences, uh, they finally get their moment, they get their chance. And they they pay their respects to Gandhi. And the mother says, Mahatma, Bapu, please tell my son he needs to clean his room. He's so messy. He leaves his things all over the house. It creates so much stress and so much anger for me. Please, please, please tell my son to to clean his room.
1: And Gandhi says, famously, I will do that, but come back in 1 year.
0: Come back in 1 year. So, the mother and the son just go away. The year passes. And it's like Groundhog Day in a way. The the day of audiences returns. The mother and her son travel again, wait in line all day, and come back for their audience, their second audience. And at the second audience, the mother kind of reminds Gandhi of what she was looking for. She said, Last year I was here, I asked you to help tell my son to clean his room to not be such a mess in the house. Um, and, And you told us to come back in one year. And he says, Oh, yes. I remember you now. And he looks at the son and he says to the boy, it's very important that you clean up your room. You're causing your mother so much stress. You're, making her, you're, you're bringing untold misery to her. It's your duty, your job to take care of yourself and not cause uh, a mess for others. So clean up your room. And the son basically says, the boy says, okay, I will. Thank you, Bapa. Or thank you, thank you, Bapu. Thank you, Gandhi. And the mother's overjoyed. She's like, this is wonderful. My son will now clean his room because Gandhi told him to. But she's curious. And she says, before we leave, I just want to ask, um, why did you tell us to come back after a year? Why did you tell us to wait a year? And Gandhi's famous answer was, oh, I told you to wait a year because... I needed a
1: year to go clean up my room first,
0: which kind of speaks to a theme one will hear in spiritual contexts. When we t- when anyone talks about the relationship of the inner practice to engagement with the outer world, um, there's often the phrase like, clean up your own room, clean up your own house before you even think about giving advice or tips on how someone else might clean up their house or room. So I share that story because there is a request from a Sangha member that I offer some reflections about anger, that I speak about the the theme of anger and how maybe meditation um, sheds light on the dynamic of anger and, and the conflict that comes with anger. And I share the Gandhi story because if the request this request had come last year, <laughs> I might have said, "I'll need a year on that. I'll come back in a year and, and reflect on that." But as it so happens, I um, I have been reflecting a lot on anger. I've been studying anger in myself, been studying the nature of conflict. Um, in my own life, and how I think there are resonances with the conflicts we see outside of us in the world. And to some degree, I was trying to speak to this with my friend Bob Wright on my podcast that published that I published or republished last week. Um, so a little bit about that podcast in case you haven't heard it yet, and you don't need to. I want to give you the kind of top level uh, sense of what bob and i were trying to talk about so to give you the context um my friend bob who i i know from meditation world from going on retreats bob's a writer a journalist a podcaster um he has written many books on evolutionary psychology human history kind of the uh his more recent book was called why buddhism is true looking at the relationship between modern psychology and buddhism he's a big thinker and he's got a new book in in the works called the radical power of cognitive empathy and as much as i think this is a really important book i worry about the title because unless you've been listening to me talk about this a lot, or listening to him talk about this a lot, you're not likely to be all that uh, familiar with the phrase cognitive empathy. And it can often be confused with a more regular form of empathy that we might call emotional empathy. So in real brief, emotional empathy uh, is often referred to as the ability to feel what another person's feeling. So it's the direct feeling. When I feel pain because you're in pain, that's emotional empathy. But cognitive empathy, and the word reason cognitive is there, is that it's not so much a feeling, but cognitive empathy is the ability to imagine what another person is experiencing to imagine when, how another person or group of people see the world. And to do that, to be able to see, to imagine how another person or group sees something, um, to do that, you ha- one has to, in a way, suspend your own story, your own view of things, to pause that and then actively imagine how someone else could see things that might be different. And I won't, I, I can't really get into Bob's full thesis here, but the subtitle of Radical Power of Cognitive Empathy is his view that it might be the very capacity that saves our species in that we're all seeing this we you don't have to look far in the news you don't have to dig deep past the first page of the newspaper but we're all seeing that conflict
1: tribalism violence feels like it's on the rise and global
0: threats global conditions whether they're pandemics Uh, disasters related to climate change, even, you know, arms races in the sky and and, and, in the stars. There are global challenges that our species is facing. And if we, Bob's theory, Bob's thesis is that if we are able, if we're going to be able to address those, these global conflicts, these global issues, we will need as a species to come together and cooperate to some degree far better than we are now and so his at the root of his diagnosis of you know the the existential stakes of our species is the concern that the psychology of tribalism of us versus them of me versus you that the psychology of tribalism is in some ways at the root of our species' inability
1: to address these global issues. Take climate change, for example.
0: And so he spends a lot of time talking about these global issues and how cognitive empathy could improve our ability to collaborate, improve our ability to overcome tribalism. But he's also savvy enough. Bob's also, you know, dynamically intellectual enough to know that cognitive empathy just won't is not just for world peace. He's you know, he'll make the case that it can improve your 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 home front too, whether it's like your relationships at work, your relationships with your friends, or your relationships with your partner, or even, as I would say, in meditation, your relationship to yourself. And so, in that episode, he actually canvassed his newsletter looking for people willing to share personal stories about practicing cognitive empathy or having difficulty practicing cognitive empathy in their personal life. And I wrote back to him and said, I'm your rablat. Rablat? I'm your lab rat. It's too early. I'm your lab rat. I'm your canary in a coal mine. And by that I meant, um and any of you know this but um you know Terry and I live in a fairly secluded semi-rural uh, ha- uh home that's in some ways pretty isolated it's like a it's like a mini retreat of sorts and um in this retreat like environment which really can function like a mirror mirroring ourselves back to ourselves mirroring myself back to myself now I, I say that because you know you might think oh they're they live in this idyllic rural place in Maine and they're kind of in this bubble and removed from everything but if you've ever gone re- on retreat uh, and experienced the the power of the mirror that the retreat provides of looking in your, at yourself in the mirror you know that it's not so easy that lots of things that you can pretend aren't there or, or deny just kind of flash before you when in, in all their glory
1: vividness and
0: given the various indexes of stress that we've experienced since we've merged our lives meaning from the ending of marriages to the moving of house twice in one year to redesigning and trying to adapt a business to a a, a landscape of our industry that is just going through a, a sort of an ongoing earthquake of uncertainty and instability to merging our homes integrating our children That has been
1: a real challenge.
0: Now the good news is, as I said to Bob, you know, what's so interesting about this as a a case study is that I'm doing all this work. I'm in this situation. I'm on this retreat with the person I love the most, with the person I care and most deeply about and have the most intimate depth of love and, ri- and connection with and even with that it's like if we're like sometimes we terry and i say to each other it's like we're we're two singers trying to sing in harmony and we when we sing in harmony it's outstanding the harmony that we produce is just between us is outstanding like nothing like we've ever known. But when one of us gets a little out of tune, if you've ever heard of the difficult relationships between uh, singers, it's like Simon and Garfunkel or John Lennon and Paul McCartney, et cetera, et cetera. A little bit out of tune, a little bit too slow, out of time can really, really kick up some intense very deeply passionate conflict and what i've learned and i should say i've been learning this with the help of a couple therapists that terry and i see i've been learning this with my own personal therapist learning this through reading through conversations with friends meditation reflection and journaling on my own but what I've learned, if I were to distill it down, is that the root of the kinds of unnecessary interpersonal conflicts that we've weathered, which isn't the, the, there's the, there's the unavoidable stresses of life, pan, like as we saw with the pandemic, or um, you know business financial stress, or um, just the world stress, the impact of the climate of the world, whether it's domestically with, as I said, the violence that we see,
1: or the climate change, or the the world uh,
0: kind of spasms of violence and and outbreaks of violence that are continuing. I mean, so given all of that, When, and I want to say that all of those forms are, are, in some ways, I'm calling them unavoidable in the sense that they, they're happening, but it's the way that I'm picking them up, and the way they affect me, that is spinning into unnecessary conflict with the one, the person I care so much about, because that's the unnecessary conflict I'm trying to speak to. But the unnecessary conflict, all as, as you know, as Terry and I have done our work. And really analyzed and and kind of done postmortems on on misunderstandings. What I've seen again and again and again and again is that the conflicts kick up with a, a host of factors, but one is misunderstanding. something was said and misinterpreted or misunderstood or the intention of what was said wasn't received the way it was intended. So there's some kind of misunderstanding. But then from that primary misunderstanding, a sense of certainty about what is true takes root. And it's that certainty that I want to speak to a little bit about because the certainty of, oh, I know what I'm thinking and I know what they're thinking and I know what they're not thinking. Or if I say in the content, I know what I'm thinking. I can know what I can hear what Terry's saying. And I know what she's not seeing. And so I see her blind spot on this and I can, I'm going to set her straight. Cause I know.
1: And I spoke about that with Bob, if you want to hear more details about that, but in that certainty,
0: As soon as I was certain that I knew, my ability to practice cognitive empathy and take Terry's perspective or see the perspective that she might have on something was out the window. Couldn't do it. So as soon as I started feeling right or righteous or indignantly righteous, or incredulously righteous, if you want to add some words to that. Whenever that would happen, my ability to exercise perspective taking was lost. Couldn't do it, and I saw, like Homer Simpson, again and again, the unfortunate dope. Oh! Lost. If I lose cognitive empathy, it almost
1: guarantees. We get into the ditch. And I see some of you nodding your head, so maybe you can relate. Now the there's a lot of Buddhism in that.
0: The 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 problem of certainty, the problem of having a fixed view. But I want to spend a little bit of time just speaking to the the in a way the medicine, the antidote to this kind of certainty and the, the loss of cognitive empathy or the loss, the inability to practice cognitive empathy that's, that that certainty um, causes or brings me. And the antidote uh, is something that I've spoken here about. I try to model it, we, we try to model it with all of you, but the antidote is what I'm going to loosely refer to as the arc of wise communication. The arc of wise communication, ARC. And ARC arc stands for active reflective communication. Active reflective communication. Now, wise speech in Buddhism, um, if you've seen some of these memes or you've seen um, you've read about this, you know, oftentimes wise speech in Buddhism is is determined by whether a speech or a statement is beneficial? Is it good to say? Is it kind? And is it timely? Is it well timed? So there's these three criteria that the Buddhists often say, Ask yourself, is it timely? Is it kind? Is it beneficial? And if it is all three, then go ahead and speak from your heart. And if it's not all three, then be quiet. Hang back. Now, with all due respect to the Buddhists, I feel like that advice is useless it's useless in the sense that i was not and i've been trying to do this for a long time and i haven't been able to practice it because when i get triggered when the trigger of certainty kicks up in me i don't have the ability to reflect is this kind is this beneficial <laughs> Is this this is this timely? A whole different uh, a whole different uh, region of my brain kicks in and acts differently. So I want to humbly suggest that what I'm referring to as the arc of wise communication is a more uh, hopefully pragmatic and maybe beneficial way of practicing wise speech. It certainly has for me and I can say this this is, this is what does work for me. So in the arc of wise speech, the ARC, the active reflective communication process, which I think probably has been named by other people. Um, I'm not claiming I've invented this. But the first part is that in communication, it's very important to actively listen to the person you're engaged with. So active listening requires an ability to both be aware of what you're thinking, to be aware internally of what you're feeling, to be connected to that, but not so overshouted by what you're feeling and thinking so that you can actively listen to what the other person's saying. You can take in what they're saying. And I can't tell you the number of times that when feelings kick up, when strong feelings kick up, and uh, ideas and thoughts related to how right your perception or my perception is—it's very difficult to actively listen. So this is a practice. This is a practice that I do. But part of active listening is um, something I read in a book probably titled "The Divorce Prevention Handbook." <laughs> the Divorce Prevention Handbook. The tip was don't interrupt don't interrupt incredibly difficult for me when the stakes are high incredibly difficult but in from actively listening the next step from hearing what someone's saying in this case terry what terry's saying or a friend is saying the practice is to reflect back what you hear so that the person you're speaking to feels like you have understood them. To reflect back what you've heard to the satisfaction that the person you're speaking with feels like you've understood them, that you got them.
1: And from that,
0: then communicating from your heart. So once you've demonstrated that you've listened, that you've internalized and metabolized what you've heard, you're able to communicate that, you've, you've, that you understand what you've heard through reflecting back to the person. Once that is done, once that's completed, then to step in with what you're, how you're seeing things and, and speaking from that. It's like, well, my, in my experience, this is how I'm seeing, or this is how I'm feeling. Or as my couples, our couples therapist says, be careful with the you statements. Do you see what you're doing? You statements. Are you aware of what you're saying? Are Are you aware of your tone? Are you aware of the you statements come with an attack? So the practice of you know drawing from the the the, the practice of nonviolent communication. The encouragement is to speak from oneself, having done the U-turn, meaning going, taking the U-turn into yourself and speaking from what you're feeling, what I'm feeling. And now this is, this is not easy. And this is something that I would say I've been actively engaged in practicing with Terry for a couple of years now.
1: And it takes time. But I will say,
0: the better we get at it, the better we get at avoiding or averting potential conflicts. As I said to Bob, you know, it can sound idyllic over here, but we're also, we're living together in isolation. We're basically with each other all the time. We practice together, we do our work together. We take a walk together. We cook food together. We clean together. We move wood together. We're you know so imagine if you were with someone all the time, even if they were your the perfect partner for you, things are going to get things are going to get challenging at times within those conditions. But this ability to actively listen, not interrupt, reflect what we're each hearing, the satisfaction the other person feels heard is the difference between
1: being here with you now and not, meaning
0: that's how existentially deep conflicts can go. Are we going to survive? Are we going to make this? So yes, it's on the domestic level, but it feels nuclear. Like the kind of escalation and inflamed conflicts we're seeing in the world. So I'm going to pause. I'll, I'll have more to say about this. Um, this is, I'm sort of just opening up this theme. And this is a theme. I did, I've talked about elements of this before. This is going to sound familiar to some of you. This cognitive empathy theme. How to to see someone from something from another person's perspective. And really, what I'm trying to get to here is the roads into the ability for cognitive empathy. Because I think, particularly in our relationships, cognitive empathy, the practice of cognitive empathy is an activity we have to be engaged in. It's not like a trait you're just going to have because you read about it in a book and think it's important. It's an active, Trait. It's a it's a capacity that that requires activity, of the active listening and reflection to really develop it. But as I was, the thing I want to close with, and the thought I want to leave you with, and this is a meditation from my reflections on this. Is that practicing cognitive empathy requires us to balance, requires me to balance two things that aren't so easy to balance. And, and, I, and coming back to the, the introductory question about anger, when these two things are out of balance, anger can flare in me. So the first thing to hold in balance is to be awareness of the truth of your experience. That's the first thing. What is what are you certain about in the truth of your experience? So we're not denying our own personal experience when we practice cognitive empathy. And I want to I want to say that's the first step to be really in touch, having gone in, gone through the U-turn, turning your awareness back inside. What am I experiencing? What is what is the truth of what I'm experiencing? And it might be I'm I'm triggered. I just heard something, that, that thing I heard indicates that there's something very disconcerting in our dynamic right now, and I, and I need to speak to this, this is a problem. So to be really rooted in what the truth of your own experience is. And I would say meditation, with its inward, and meditation, the, the, the fluid yin yoga, the yin yoga that we teach, all ways of developing the, 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 the skills of perception to be aware and awake to what the truth of your own experience is. So that's the first part, to know the truth of your own experience. But the thing to balance that with is, this, so you're, you know the certainty of your own experience, the truth of your own experience, but to balance that with, Remaining uncertain about what the
1: truth is.
0: To me to remain curious, open-ended, and questioning around what the truth, the capital T, the truth is. And what i can see is that when my ability to when i get triggered when i get up like wound up i conflate those two i'm convinced that my experience the truth of my experience is the truth and then i'm
1: caught and then i'm in, then i'm dangerous but when i
0: can be rooted in my experience and be uncertain about what the truth is. Then I can practice asking about someone else's experience in the case, in this case, Terry, I can ask her about what, how she's seeing things, see her perspective and start to get a larger perspective around the dynamic. I don't get a. I'm never going to have 100% certainty about the truth, the real truth. But the more I include multiple perspectives on what's happening, I would say the less bias, the less uh, influenced by my own bias I become.
1: And that's the value of what I see our conversation doing here. That in a way where
0: I'm trying to guide us all. And gently hold us in this in the space where we're creating the supporting the conditions where we can listen internally to our own experience. So that's listening without interruption. How do we listen to ourselves without interruption in our practice? How do we reflect on what we're hearing? And then if we're going to share. How do we communicate what we've experienced? So that's, that's like part of our dialogue process together as a, as a Sangha. And as someone's sharing, how do we listen without interruption to what's being shared? How do we reflect on that in our, let the, let the share uh, resonate with our own life and reflect on that, and then speak from that understanding? And in this way, in this kind of a a, a way of communicating together, my view is that we can all start to practice cognitive empathy, imagining what it's like to see something through another person's eyes or
1: through another person's experience. And those are the Maybe some baby steps
0: towards making that ability to take perspective, baby steps to making that more of a enduring character feature of how how we are. So we might get a, a, you know the idea of um, you know it's it's one thing to do it once. Oh, I, ref- I did a reflective dialogue and I got it right once. It's one thing to do it once. It's another thing to have that as an abiding quality of your being, a-, a resource of your of your character that you can draw on, particularly when things get escalated. And so far, I when I've been able to exercise cognitive empathy the way I'm describing, in the in the times that I'm able to. I have noticed it does not that 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 ability to 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 take perspective averts a brewing catastrophe because there's more mutual understanding less projection less certainty and less righteousness in the mix <clears throat> so that was a bit of a talk, um, and it's not the end of this talk. I'm just opening some themes. Um, so we'll continue to explore, uh, and this and this fits in with the theme of nonviolence from the Martin Luther King reflection I gave. You know, to understand nonviolence, we also have to understand violence. We have to get into the roots of violence, and the roots of violence in the
1: world are in the roots of our heart.
0: And I've seen this upfront and close and personal for, you know, in a vivid way for a few years now. And I've learned personally more about myself in these last two years than I could say the rest, more than the rest of my life. Okay, as I said towards the end there, this will be a story of practice that continues. I have a lot more to reflect and share on this particular theme. I look forward to bringing you those reflections. But again, if you enjoyed the um, the dialogue, or the, I shouldn't say dialogue because you didn't hear the dialogue. That comes with the Sangha membership. But if you enjoyed the, the share of the talk that I gave and would like to participate in the conversation, if you'd like to participate in the uh, the active, reflective communication kind of dialogue within a within a, a group of practitioners aligned around the practice of yin yoga and qigong and meditation. If you'd like that support, do consider joining the Riverbird Sangha. As I said, we have a sliding tier uh membership structure. Uh, we give you two weeks for free, along with a free ebook, The What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga, and we're just very excited about what we're offering this year and we'd really wholeheartedly like to invite you to join us along with us. I look forward to seeing you on the mat, as they say. Until next episode, stay safe, stay strong, take good care, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All the best.